You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Don't ask where the idea of a sitting president running for a third term came from. It came from the sewer. I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has participated in our fundraiser. We still have that deal running. 1888, you get the archives to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Two things. One, if you like this program, you'll like more of it. I've covered a lot of important political topics. Secondly, you'll help the program. So I hope you'll consider that again. It's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks a lot. Franklin Roosevelt was pretty clever about how he ran for those third and fourth terms that he alone in history got. Reviewing in a history book, it looks easy, but it was always complicated. Roosevelt's second term had ups and downs, a recession tied to his policies by opponents, and subscribed to not enough New Deal by his supporters. All of that had angered voters, his attempt to purge senators that didn't agree with him and packed the Supreme Court, had created a considerable anti-Roosevelt coalition in his second term. Then there was tradition. Why George Washington had refused a third term. Who was anyone? Who was Franklin Roosevelt to break that tradition? Rumors flew that FDR may not even run. After all, in January 1940, He was contracting with Colliers to write articles for his post-presidency. Or so the rumor mill said. Maybe he just did it to make it look like that. He tells people, private confidants, some of them who leak to newspapers, that he's aching to get back to his Hudson River home. Other candidates are spoken about. His campaign manager, James Farley, who says FDR told him he wouldn't run, starts to mount a campaign of his own. He controls the patronage for the New Deal. He's a big shot in New York politics. He's got a good shot. John Nance Garner, the vice president, has long since given up on FDR, his administration. He's opposed to the New Deal. He spends most of his time in the Senate with his fellow conservative senators. He sends feelers out. The former speaker and Texas congressman has a national name and support among Southerners. So you got two big candidates there. Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State. He's being spoken about as well as a potential successor to Roosevelt. But none of these guys have the name of Roosevelt, and all this buzz goes to the convention with them bickering, silent campaigns, attempts to get delegates. On the first day, the Farley, Hull, and Garner people are husking around for votes. Then, Albin Barkley. Yes, we know him. Future Vice President sometimes ally to the Roosevelt White House, 
goes up to the microphone to perform what's certainly a favor for him. He has, he says, a statement from the President of the United States. The President has never had, and has not today, any desire or purpose to continue in office or to be nominated. He wishes, with earnestness and sincerity, to make it clear the delegates in this convention are free to vote for any candidate. Nobody knows what to do now. With this announcement, the convention hall, thousands of Democratic politicos from across the country fall silent. But not for long. A voice through the loudspeakers begins to call, We want Roosevelt! We want Roosevelt! We want Roosevelt! Then the crowd joins in, We want Roosevelt! We want Roosevelt! Yet this demonstration, even if it's felt by the delegates, even if they're joining in the sing-song fashion, is less than spontaneous. It was all the result of the Director of Sanitation for Chicago. Speaking in a microphone underneath the convention hall from a basement room, as he was instructed to do by Mayor Ed Kelly of Chicago. Public workers from sanitation and other employees fill the hall to make sure that those delegates start cheering their way. Thus, the rumor came that it was the voice of the sewers that spoke. Whatever it was, it worked. Roosevelt was, quote, drafted by this 1940 Democratic convention in Chicago with 86% of those delegates. James Farley had to settle for 7% of the delegates. He was bitter after that. He felt he had been betrayed by Roosevelt. Garner settled for just 6%. Hull got barely anything at all. It's likely that Roosevelt's intentions were not so sincere as Barclay's statement or the demonstration Chicago showed. It's not known for sure whether he ever was going to decline a third term. But what's possible is that after the fall of France in 1940, he became convinced that it was necessary for him to win. Certainly, political bosses like Ed Kelly, mayor of Chicago, wanted Roosevelt's name leading their tickets rather than having to explain to urban voters who John Nance Garner was or James Farley. And supporters of the New Deal wanted someone who would lead the New Deal, not a different Democrat who would have the opposite policy. That was 1940. Four years later, now we are in the midst of World War II. And again, there's some question, what will Roosevelt do? The Republicans are expected to nominate a new star in their party, Thomas Dewey, a prosecutor turned governor, known for fighting corruption and crime. Now, a fourth term was unprecedented. I mean, a third term is really unprecedented. A fourth term might be considered a downright affront to liberty. Is Roosevelt going to run? But yet, there's somewhat less speculation because troops are over in Europe, troops are in the Pacific, the nation needs their commander-in-chief, but Roosevelt still cannot announce for it. He can't simply take that fourth term. So he summons a reporter into the Oval and issues a statement proactively. I would accept and serve, but I would not run in typical partisan fashion. I would serve only if ordered by the commander-in-chief of all of us, the people of the U.S. Is that even news? Wendell Wilkie said when the announcement of Roosevelt's decision to run for a fourth term was made. And there was very little opposition in the Democratic Party this time, and he won. He beat Dewey in the election and served for a month into the new term. But running for a four-term, something 
no one else has done. It helped a lot of down-ticket Democratic candidates win in 1944, but it also shocked many and angered many, especially those in politics who were getting a little tired of FDR. On the very first day of the new GOP Congress, 1947, the first item of business, they vote for an amendment limiting the president to two terms. Or, if the sitting president, as the result of taking over because they were a VP and the president died, 10 years. They exempt the sitting current incumbent, Truman. That's nice. As former candidate Thomas Dewey said, the third term was the most dangerous threat to our freedom ever proposed. But it's not just the Republicans in Congress. See, this was an anti-Roosevelt bill, but it's not just the Republicans in Congress. Three-fourths of the state legislatures by 1951 agree and ratify the amendment. And in many of those states, Mississippi, Missouri, they're states that voted for Roosevelt and Truman. So in 1951, the 22nd Amendment to the Constitution of the United States takes effect. On the floor of Congress, there was some different ideas expressed. There was opposition to the 22nd Amendment. John McCormick, the former speaker, said, The framers of the Constitution considered this question of two terms and decided not to tie the hands of future generations. Joseph Bryson, a New Deal congressman from South Carolina, said, If the people can be trusted to vote for someone for one term, They can be trusted to make the decision to give him a third term or a fourth term. Yet the amendment passed. What the GOP party got was their own president being the first to be term limited by the 22nd Amendment, leading some to quip. The Republicans aimed at Roosevelt and hit Eisenhower. Now with hindsight, we can see that they hit others. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush. And that 22nd will hit President Obama soon. Most importantly, from a GOP perspective, the Congress of 47 to 49, they limited the popular Ronald Reagan. Reagan didn't take it lying down. He complained about the effects of the 22nd in a Washington Post article while he was president. The minute the 84 election is over, everybody starts thinking about what are we going to do in 88? and focusing a spotlight on the new candidates. So complained President Reagan. This theory that the 22nd is a lame duck creator is definitely an argument of some even now who want to repeal the 22nd. The president can't use the threat of, I might run for a third term to make sure that he is relevant, that he is taken seriously, that he gets news attention, and that he gets what he wants from the Congress. Think about the Senate where so many people consider running for president from. How can a president who is term-limited be taken seriously in that body? Look at in 2007 what happened to George W. Bush. America was way more interested in Hillary versus Obama than in any statement that was coming out of the White House during that year. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Press conference in the White House. Well, wait a second. It's the Texas primary. Who's going to win? Right now, it's known that President Obama will not be in his chair February 2017. Each passing month, there will be more and more about who will replace him there. His statements will lose presidential power. His plans will have to include thoughts of whose presidential campaign he's helping and who he's hurting. It's an issue that Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell 
of all people, actually agree on, or at least they did at different times. Both sponsored legislation to repeal the 22nd Amendment. Reed did it in 1989. McConnell did it in 1995. To their credit, both of these senators, now leaders in their parties, did it when another party's president was in office. So they can't be accused of bias there. In both cases, though, the legislation failed. Another congressman, Joseph Serrano of New York, has sponsored legislation with every president since 1997, regardless of which party's in office. These attempts have lacked majority support, but they're out there. And the main argument is to reduce the lame duck factor and free the American people to have a free choice. If they want to vote for the same person, why can't people be free to vote for whoever they want? Well, the retort may be, in providing the voters more choice, are we actually limiting their liberty? Now, if we look back, the comments of then-Congressman, who would be future Speaker John McCormick of Massachusetts, in opposition to the 22nd's passage, was right. The framers passed on setting a term limit for the President of the United States. The Constitutional Convention did not do this. Washington's refusal of a third term set a precedent with no law. It was a tradition that others actually didn't always follow this Washington tradition. And one that, as we'll explore a bit later, maybe Washington didn't even know he was setting. What we do know is that the second president to have two terms, Thomas Jefferson, observed what he felt was a precedent set by Washington. If some termination to the services of the chief magistrate is not forced by the Constitution or supplied by practice, his office, nominally four years, will in fact become for life. Jefferson, by his actions, codified it. In 1807, he decided not to run. His successor, Madison, followed Jefferson. Then Monroe followed Madison. Later, Andrew Jackson had an opportunity to run for three terms. He did not. But it's not true that presidents always refused in the name of George Washington to try for three. President Grant very much wanted to be nominated in 1880. That would be a non-consecutive term if he got it. He didn't get the nomination. Got some votes at the convention in 1880, but didn't get the nomination. I went to Garfield. Theodore Roosevelt ran for a third term in 1912. If he won that, that would have given him 11 years in office. He didn't win that last term, so it didn't happen. There's some evidence that Woodrow Wilson wanted a third term in 1920. For instance, he sort of spoiled the campaign of his son-in-law, the Treasury Secretary McAdoo, from running for president. Some evidence of it, but for health reasons, he was not able to run. So the Washington tradition was a force that chastened the appetite a bit, but was never perfect, especially for presidents running in non-consecutive terms. But is it just about ego? I mean, it must be a little, because presidents are politicians after all. But are these presidents actually doing a service by having tried to run for a third term? Maybe it's something that we need to look at. 1961, a thick forest, 71 miles from the White House, an area known as Camp David. Lunch was prepared in the Aspen House, one of the cabin-like buildings on the presidential retreat, J. 
just then named for President Eisenhower's grandson, David. No longer president, he sat down with the new president, John F. Kennedy. The reason for the launch was to show unity after the new president's debacle at the Bay of Pigs. During the lunch, Eisenhower sat mostly quiet as Kennedy explained the various things that went wrong, what it was like being a new president. Later, in a walk out in the woods, that's when Eisenhower would save his comments. And we have the conversation from Richard Reeves working off Eisenhower's presidential papers. Mr. President, yes. before you approved this plan, did you have everybody in front of you all debating the thing so you got the pros and cons yourself? Well... Or did you see these people one at a time? Yes, I did have a meeting. Did the Joint Chiefs approve? Yes. Were there any changes in what they approved? Yes. We did want to call off the bombing, Sally. After the troops were already at sea? Why? We felt it was necessary that we keep our hand out of the affair. If it was learned that we were doing this and not the rebels. The Soviets would be very apt to cause us trouble in Berlin. That is exactly the opposite of what would happen. If the Soviets see us show any weakness, that's when they push the hardest. If we go in, it absolutely has to be a success. If we do go in again, it will absolutely be successful. I'm very glad to hear that, Mr. President. It was an ex-president dressing down the current president, a man who had been a commanding general, dressing down a lieutenant. But that dressing down only occurred in those woods. In public, when they reached the bevy of microphones and the group of reporters, Eisenhower stood up and supported the president. The man who was in charge of foreign policy should be supported, he said. That was class. Kennedy's former opponent, Richard Nixon, also showed up at a different time with the president for a unity meeting. And they talked a little bit, less of a reprimand with that meeting. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Nixon came to the presidency eight years after his loss to Kennedy. Presumably... With more experience, he had been vice president for eight years. Eisenhower had sent him on a bunch of foreign trips. American voters expected him to handle Vietnam. He had set those expectations, telling voters he had a plan to end the war in Vietnam. As four years of negotiations, escalations during his first term would make clear, he had no such plan. Nixon, though coming from a bit of experience 
had unrealistic expectations as to what the North Vietnamese would do and how he could intimidate Ho Chi Minh. His first cable to Hanoi as president-elect said that he wanted serious talks. It was immediately rebuffed. All that came back was withdrawal U.S. troops. Then, as a new president, he has a press conference in February where he asks for mutual withdrawal with the North Vietnamese and an exchange of prisoners. Hanoi rejects it. Now, the peace talks that had began to be set up in Paris under the Johnson administration seem to be in jeopardy. Nixon looks for a way to show some toughness. How can he intimidate Hanoi? He starts bombing the Cambodian border and then bombing Cambodia itself to try to get at the supply line for the North Vietnamese. Tries to keep it secret, it comes out in the press. He then makes a May 14th TV speech in which it's addressed to the American people, but it's obviously a message to Hanoi as well, offering proposals of simultaneous withdrawal. Hanoi rejects it. A change of presidency possibly increased the length of the war. Probably did. Perhaps controversial. I'm always interested in hearing opinions opposite my own, but I look at it, and I think that the length of the war from 1969 to 1973 was mostly due to Nixon's need of a justification for obtaining the office and to show that he was different than the previous incumbent. That's irrelevant in a way because it doesn't apply to the 22nd. If it did occur, it's not the fault of the 22nd. Johnson wasn't limited by the 22nd in 1968. He chose not to run. But it does show you that sometimes a new president engaging in foreign policy can increase the risk. Another example of an early presidential fumble, a policy hiccup, is Carter's dealings with the Soviet Union beginning of his term in 1977. He takes over. His initial memos to Brezhnev were aggressive, both on the proposals for the reductions, favoring U.S. missiles, and asking the Soviets to reduce more than had been proposed by the previous administration, and insisting on human rights during these negotiations. Carter's use of human rights was intended to put the Soviets on the defensive, but it gave Brezhnev cause to refer to the document as insulting and the proposals as insulting. A visit from Cyrus Vance to the Soviet Union would come up short. Carter had hoped for an early treaty with the Soviets to get SALT II underway and to start working on a SALT III arms reduction treaty. In the end, just at the end of his presidency, he would end up getting SALT II, and even that would be rejected by the Senate. He wasn't able to get it through. Some naivete was at work there. But can we blame the Soviets? From Roosevelt to Carter, we showed them eight leaders. They showed us three. We have, due to our democracy, enhanced by the 22nd and Washington's tradition, an unstable leadership at the top. It keeps changing. Very limited transition time. And in fact, the two administrations only talk as much as the new president and the old president want to talk. If you look at Eisenhower to Kennedy, if you look at Johnson to Nixon, if you look at Ford to Carter, you see something. Each new president thinks they are better. They think the old is mistaken. And this can lead to fumbles. Ike might have been too slow, according to the Kennedy people. Johnson was probably too weak, according to the Nixon people. 
Ford and Kissinger were too inflexible, according to the Carter people, and perhaps not aggressive enough, and we're going to show those Soviets. The framers wanted energy and dispatch in the office of president. That was specifically said during the debate in the Constitutional Convention. But sometimes the energy and dispatch leads to a naivete that the world is just a clean marker board in the executive office building, just waiting for the president's new approach. That's a downside to presidential transitions. Yet sometimes we welcome that clear marker board, that new approach. And as presidents learn, maybe they have some early fumbles, but sometimes they find new ways to handle challenges that the previous administration wouldn't have dreamed of. Kennedy's handling of missiles in Cuba through a blockade against the warnings of his experts is regarded as highly successful. Truman's change in approach, more confrontational with the Soviet Union, is seen generally by historians as a positive, particularly over FDR's unhealthy appearance at Yalta and what the strategy was there. Maybe sometimes you need a new guy in office. Carter may have fumbled with the Soviets, didn't work out so well in Iran. But he was absolutely the right person for those negotiations in Camp David between Sudat and Begin. I don't know if Gerald Ford had the same ability to put those two together, to listen, to understand, to placate, and to cajole until the deal was done. A deal that everybody thinks was a success. Maybe this is why it's true that the original Constitution, the original ink of 1787, does not limit the president's term and didn't prior to the 22nd's passage. Making the president eligible for re-election was to avoid them being a lame duck. It was specifically discussed. Now, look at what the Federalist 71, written by Alexander Hamilton, what he writes. A man acting in a capacity of chief magistrate under a consciousness that in a very short time he must lay down the office will feel himself too little interested in it to hazard any material censure or perplexity from the independent exertion of his powers. If you're only going to be in there a short time, why take a risk? That's what it says. And as we said, this was debated in the Constitutional Convention, but there is, however, a little problem discussing the original Constitution in terms of what the framers wanted. Sitting in the room in the Pennsylvania State House as the whole thing's being discussed is... George Washington, former general of the American forces and hero of the nation. So there's some intimidation, right? (laughs) Discussing the issue fully, because everyone knew if there was to be a chief magistrate that he was going to be it. There's also an incentive to discuss it in a certain way, because many hoped if there was to be a chief magistrate, he would be it. And therefore, why limit the amount of terms that Washington's going to get and then put some other guy in there? Are you crazy? He's going to be great. Let's make sure he can run for as many terms as he wants. We have the re-election in there to ensure safety, security, and liberty. But let's make sure we put no limit on it. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. 
all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. So that explains the lack of a term limit, at least in one way. And Hamilton writing in that Federalist, well, he's a big supporter of Washington, too. But here's something else. We talk about that Washington tradition that lasted through American history until Roosevelt's time. But it's not entirely clear that Washington intended to set such a precedent, even if that precedent is so often assigned to him. Yes, future presidents built the tradition. But did he intend it to apply to others? Or did he just not run for third term? It's not entirely clear. And so I think that the weight of evidence is that the tradition, making it a tradition, was an afterthought in his mind. Now, unlike FDR and his comments about getting back to the Hudson River, when everyone knew that Franklin Roosevelt loved the presidency and loved being president and loved politics and manipulating people and all of that. In Washington's case, when he says he'd like to get back to the Potomac, back to Mount Vernon... He means it all through his correspondence while he's in presidency. And it kind of steps up in the second term. He's writing letters to his overseer in Mount Vernon, making sure that he's planting things right, that he's managing things correctly. Secondly, he was annoyed by the partisan wrangling, by newspaper articles attacking him. We know that he wished to retire in 1792 but decided not to as events in France and corresponding events in England required a strong leader, and also that both sides, the warring sides, Jefferson, Hamilton, they weren't ready to run in 1792. They both wanted him to stay for another term. So that makes the reasons ultimately that Washington did not run for a third term personal. He was going to only run for one term anyway, and that certainly wouldn't have been setting any tradition. Constitution allows re-election. His reasons were personal. Indeed, his message explaining his retirement, and it is telling that that's what he calls it, retirement, doesn't mention simply not running for re-election, but says he's retiring, which implies there's a decision there. He could have very well run for a third term, but he decided to retire. The farewell address. In it, he begs forgiveness almost. I rejoice that the state of your affairs no longer renders the pursuit of inclination incompatible with duty. I am persuaded that, and here's the key, in the present circumstances of our country, you will not disapprove of my decision 
to retire. Ah, so there he's implying in the farewell address, Washington is, that in a worse circumstance, like a French fleet landing in Maryland, that he might have a duty to seek a third term. His farewell address, this is his message to the U.S. about what it should do in the future. That would have been the spot to assert a tradition if he wanted to, and he doesn't do it. He suggests other things. No foreign entanglements, keep the regions together. But it contains no direct suggestion that the president should follow his two-term example, that all presidents in the future should follow it. There's only one piece of evidence that exists, and it is in an early draft of the farewell address, sent to Hamilton for his comments, for any edits. And it contains a passage that he bracketed. May I be allowed further to add that an early example of rotation in office of so high and delicate a nature may equally accord with the Republican spirit of the Constitution and the ideas of liberty and safety entertained by the people. It's next in the final version of the farewell address. But he does there in the draft seem to suggest rotation is good. But it doesn't make it into the farewell, as we said. And, you know, it is said, may I be allowed further add, it's not quite of a direct statement. It's struck out by Hamilton, perhaps, or by Washington's second thought. We know that Hamilton liked life terms, so he certainly didn't want to place any limit. In any case, it seems to be more in that draft of just an additional reason why you should understand my reason to retire. So I think it's largely true, therefore, that Washington's so-called tradition of two terms was not at least a solid one in his mind. It was established later. And indeed, FDR in his 1940 and 1944 runs, running during a foreign policy emergency in the world, had a little bit of support there in Washington's writing. Yet things have changed. Amendments are made, and then they are part of the Constitution. Once added, no less important than the original 1787 language. So, although now it's relatively modern framers that we're talking about who gave us the two-term limit, they decided on it. We've covered a lot of ground. There's more ground to cover, but I think it's a classic debate between the idea of Roosevelt's as the people are the ultimate commander-in-chief. Their choice is sacred, even if they decide to keep electing the same guy over and over again. And... The other side of the debate, a more real politic approach to, look, yeah, you can say that, but this is what's going to probably happen, and we know from history. So you got to change the rules to rotate things a little more. I find myself wary of repeal. First, I think the simple power of incumbency is strong enough to give any person who's an incumbent an advantage in the election because they are the president. Most presidents win re-election when they seek it, when they desire to seek it, and when their party allows them to run. While people have a free choice, past evidence shows that the choices tend to go in a certain direction. Thus, keep the incumbent unless the economy's bad. Didn't help Ford, Carter, George Bush, Hoover. But those presidents had some pretty bad situations. Either a scandal, an intra-party fight, or a recession to contend with. So perhaps if you allow presidents to keep running, those are going to be the only three reasons you can vote out an incumbent that we know of. The office has a lot of power as well, which can be used to assist a president. Patronage, influence over 
where bases are put, where bases are withdrawn. I mean, you know, a lot of the bases have been eliminated, so that's not as big. But you know, congressional pork, they can affect other congressmen and their votes. President can do an awful lot. And they run most of the employees in the federal government. So all that power, you could argue, should be checked. But would presidents keep running? Do they want to retire? Well, I would almost be more concerned with the president sort of forced to run or at least strongly encouraged to run by the party, by the political bosses. You know, that's half of the Roosevelt thing. I think Roosevelt probably wanted to run, liked being president, but encouragement came from the bottom up as well. Those political bosses and those down-ticket candidates wanted the Roosevelt name. I think that's always going to happen in a party. They're going to want the sitting president unless there's some kind of scandal or recession. But would presidents keep doing it? Consider the case of Hilmer Moore. Who is he? Well, in 1949, Hilmer Moore was elected mayor of Richmond, Texas, a town of 11,000 people. He was still mayor in 2012 when he passed away. Hilmer Moore was the longest-serving mayor in American history at 62 years. Another mayor in a different town in Texas has been serving since 1969. The mayor of Charleston, South Carolina, the largest city to have a long-term serving mayor like this, was elected in 1975. Iowa Governor Terry Bernstead, for his various terms since the 1980s, has served as Iowa governor, with some interruptions, for 19 years. Iowa has not become an oppressive banana republic, or at least we hope not. The people in Iowa can and will keep voting for people, and the same people can and will run. And why not? Here's the other side of that. President Reagan, again, complaining about the 22nd in his second term, said, Senators and congressmen are there for 30 years. It's true. The president is facing senators who have more momentum and more prestige from having, been, having served in office so long. Why can't the president at least try to match some of that? That's the argument. But age is a factor. With the propensity of incumbents to be reelected, we're going to end up with more and more aged executives for a 24-hour job involving a lot of decisions about a lot of things. So vibrancy in the Oval and assurance of liberty in the Republican rotation tradition. That's what we get from the 22nd. But what do we lose? Well, if we were to repeal it, there might be some positives. A president after two terms starts to control the party and make decisions that no political boss or union head can disagree with. They can even affront billion-dollar donors. Hey, in 1940, when Franklin Roosevelt ran, most people didn't approve of his choice of Henry Wallace to be the vice president. But he said, you're going to put him in or I don't run. The president has that kind of leverage. The president's name gives him independence from the political process, from the political bosses, the Sunday TV shows, and all those things that we sometimes hate. A lot more third-way politics, the types we're always talking about that we want, can happen possibly as a president can bring together coalitions from either party. They can do some of that now, but they only have eight years. And then they generally want to get their guy elected. 
after the eight years are done. So they're still very much in the partisan mindset. I think repealing the 22nd might, might create more interest then in congressional midterms. See, if the president's serving longer, it's the same person, and there's less of a choice, it's possible you create more interest in those congressional midterms because that's your chance to express your opinion. And that's something we really need. Voter turnout in midterms is too low for a democracy. I mean, you're going to reduce the presidential mandate because after a third term or a fourth term, there isn't going to be a mandate anymore for that person as president. Everyone's going to know the reason they were voted in because of their name and because of a situation of inertia. You want to express a mandate, it goes to Congress. Something else you might get from a repeal of the 22nd. Better presidential challengers. I mean, presidential elections throughout history haven't always been good when there's a sitting incumbent. Sure, you have some good opponents, Henry Clay, Thomas Jefferson, William Jennings Bryan, but more often you have those, you know, Alton Parkers, Walter Mondales, Alf Landons, because you have people waiting for the next election when the president isn't on the ticket. You might eliminate that by repealing the 22nd, and you might get some stronger challengers. Maybe, say, uh, Chris Christie. Now, perhaps he would have ran in 2012 if... There isn't some factor of, hey, wait till 2016 when there's no sitting president on the ticket. Hillary Clinton in 2004. Maybe she runs against George W. Bush. Don't wait till the next election when it's open. Run now. So maybe you get better elections. Colin Powell, 96. You know, why do we care about a better challenge? Well, we want to make sure that an election is the best choice of both parties. If we're going to have two parties, and a lot of people would like to have more, Let's at least make sure the best people of those two parties are running and, and we don't have a lot of people waiting on the sidelines not running and you kind of have the second tier challenging the president. So here you have it. I'm going towards the end of the podcast now and I've looked at this issue greatly. No zealot like a convert. I mean, I came into this recording saying that uh, no way. You cannot repeal the 22nd. It's too much of a danger to liberty. You might get a tyrant in office. If not a tyrant, you're just going to get a stagnation of the same name over and over again. No zealot like a convert, perhaps. Now I'm thinking that it may be particularly compelling as a reform because look at that, particularly if it's going to enhance congressional elections, maybe reduce the kind of outvalve that I think people think they have. In the presidential mandate, perhaps an ill concept, one president elected by 317 million people all over the country, 18 different major issues, isn't really a mandate at all. Have to get involved in your congressional elections. That's very compelling to me. But effectiveness is not the only dimension that we have to consider when it comes to the United States. We are a republic. We need to think about long-term continuous in that long-term continuance of the republic. Republic always tends to be more complicated and always trades effectiveness for liberty. The safety of liberty is greater than the trains running on time. A dictator can be very effective in running things for a short while. So I think in a tie between repeal or not repeal, a tie kind of between repeal and not repeal, I break slightly with the liberty side of things, and I like the two-term limit for this high office. If it's going to be changed, at least have a three-term limit, or at least 
have the president do two consecutive, and then they got to pull a Putin, have somebody else in that office who might be greatly popular, and then the other president never goes in again. At least have them take a break. It's democracy's equivalent of a diet. Maybe it's not the popular will at the time. It's something forced because it's good generally. There you have it. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.